All right. Well, good morning, everybody. How's it going? Good. My name is Josh. I'm the, the minister here at ACC, and we're going to finish up our kingdom series. Today's the last day that we're going to spend in the book of Matthew. Um, we're going to look at the final few moments of Jesus's life. We're going to look at Jesus's arrest, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But one of the things that Jesus does here in Matthew chapters 26 and 28 that I think is so important is he instituted the Lord's Supper. He instituted communion. We, we take communion here at ACC every single week. I would argue that, that the Lord's table, taking the bread and the cup, is the core component of what a church gathering really is. And so in these final few chapters, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper. And I thought rather than go verse by verse through 26, 27, and 28, I want to look at the last few moments of Jesus' life through the lens of his last meal. I want us to pay really careful attention to what Jesus says and what he does during the Last Supper. And, and my hope is that we can all have a better appreciation of what the Lord's Supper is, the richness of it, um, how we should approach the Lord's Supper. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about it, and I want us to kind of clear the air and talk about what the Lord's Supper is. So before I do that, I want to summarize a little bit of, of what we're going to get into. So in, in chapter 26, uh, Jesus lets his disciples know he's going to be arrested. Judas makes a plot to betray Jesus. He's anointed uh, in Bethany. And they, they eat this meal together. Him and his disciples do. And then right after that, Jesus is arrested. He's betrayed. His disciples desert him. He's sent before the priest, he's sent before Pilate, he's mocked, he's executed, and he's put on a cross. And as we're reading through the book of Matthew, if we're reading this for the first time, we might think that all hope is lost. He gives up his last breath and he's gone. But the scripture Ron shared with us today from John tells us that it's not the end. There is a Sunday morning, there is a resurrection. We have hope in a resurrected Christ. I want us to look at this Lord's Supper passage. It's a really short passage. So if you have your Bibles, if you're using a Bible app, um, I would love if you turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. I just want to read through it, and then I want us to dive in and really look at it with a microscope. So verse 26, Jesus says, or Matthew says, the Bible says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And after taking the cup and giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood, the blood of the covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you that from now on I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my, new in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I want us to look at this passage, and I want us to really dive in. I want us to break down the Lord's Supper into five brand new words, five new ideas. I want you guys to learn five new words today. We're going to look five new Greek words about the Lord's Supper and how we should approach the Lord's Supper. So that first verse, he says in 26, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. So your, your first word you're going to learn here is, Eucharistos. That just means gratitude, giving thanks. This is, a, this is a very important component of communion. When we take the bread and the cup, we should have this sense of gratitude in our hearts. 
There's some churches that even use that word to describe the Lord's Supper. The word Eucharist comes from this word. It means gratitude after giving thanks. And when we have gratitude at God's table, we should be thinking not only of the things that God gives us that are good, but we should be giving thanks for everything in our life. A big component of gratitude is recognizing God's will for your life and then submitting to it. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. See, being grateful, having gratitude, is recognizing God's will. And giving thanks means we submit to his will for our life. And Jesus did that in his last few moments on earth. Like if we look at, um, if we back up to chapter 26, verse 1, Jesus is submitting to God's will. In, in 26.1, he says, When he had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man has been handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people met together in the palace of the high priest, who was named Caiaphas. They planned to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him, but they said, not during the feast, so that there won't be a riot among the people. Notice that Jesus is fully aware of what's going to happen. He tells his disciples, I'm going to the cross. Jesus is in control of the situation. He knows what's going to happen. Nothing is taking him by surprise, and he goes forward with it anyway. Shortly after that, in verse 20, Judas makes plans to betray him. Excuse me, in verse um, 14, Judas makes plans to betray him, one of his own disciples. But then when we read in verse 20, it says, When it was evening, he took his place at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They became greatly distressed, and each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him if he had never been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus replied, You have said it yourself. So Jesus is at the table, and he knows full and well what Judas has done. He knows that he's going to be betrayed. And he wants to make it clear to Judas that he knows, lest anyone think that his crucifixion is some sort of cosmic, tragic mistake. Judas isn't tricking Jesus. He's not pulling one over on Jesus. And so Jesus is acknowledging God's purpose for him. He's acknowledging the Father's purpose for him with eyes wide open. But notice how he doesn't just say, hey, by the way, guys, Judas over here is going to have me arrested. He doesn't just come right out and say it, does he? Because he doesn't want to alert the other disciples that he knows what Judas is about to do. Because think about it. If he just announced at the table, by the way, Judas is going to have me arrested, what do you think the other 11 disciples are going to do? Judas is going to be hogtied in the back of the back room because they want to protect Jesus. And so Jesus does this thing where he lets Judas know, hey, I know what you're up to. I'm in control of this. You're not tricking me. I'm submitting to God's will. And also, his disciples have no idea. And the other thing that Jesus does that I think is so important is when they ask, who was it? Was it me? Was it me? And Jesus says, it's the one who dipped his hand in the bowl. 
Well, they're all eating a meal together. Everybody has dipped their hand in the bowl. So that's really not an answer either. In John, he says, the one who takes the bread from me, and he hands it directly to Judas. But even in John, in verse 13, 28, it says nobody understood what Jesus is talking about. They all thought Judas was going to go buy some stuff with the money. He says, go do what you came to do. And so Jesus is acknowledging the fact that everyone there at that table has free will. And he's acknowledging the fact that Judas at this point still could have backed out. He could have chickened out and not done it. But Jesus is submitting to the Father's will and acknowledging the fact that if Judas would have backed out, one of the other 11 would have done it. Any one of them could have been the one. It could have been any, any one of us. And so our gratitude, and Jesus gives thanks right after this moment, it means giving in to God's will. But how do we know what God's will for us is? Jesus prays in the garden, please take this suffering from me. But if it's your will, God, if it's your will, Father, let it happen. We know God's will. One way is by the way that things happen in our life. That's pretty easy. I really want something to happen and it doesn't happen. Well, then we know that that wasn't God's will for us. But I think the biggest way we can know what God's will for us, if we read in chapter 26, verse 24, we get a little bit of clue of that. Jesus says, the one who dips his hand in the bread is going to be the one who betrays me. And in verse 24, he says, the son of man will go as it is written about him. See, Jesus didn't just have a feeling that he needed to die on the cross. He just didn't have an emotion that he needed to die on the cross. He didn't really think really hard, and I really think this is God's will for him. He says, as it is written about him. Jesus searched the scriptures, and God's word is what told him what his will for his life is. We don't get to understanding what God's will for us is strictly through prayer or strictly through emotion or even through logic. The number one way we check what God's will for us is so that we can be grateful for God's will is through his word. And submitting to God's will, being content with what God has in store for us is the ultimate form of gratitude. So that was our first, our first new word was Eucharisto, gratitude. Our next one um, comes from, from the second half of this verse. It says, while they were eating, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Our next word is pasco, which means suffering. If I can get it to go. Oh, hold on, guys. There we go. He broke the bread and said, this is my body, describing the suffering he was going to go through. It's a very violent breaking. And I've noticed, typically when we, when we take the Lord's Supper, we always read out of Luke or 1 Corinthians. I think we tend to gravitate toward those two readings. Because as I was preparing for this message, I was going to have a bit about the part where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And then I got to Matthew, and it says, take, eat, this is my body. And, and it wasn't there. It's a little bit of a bias we have toward the Luke version and the account we read in 1 Corinthians. There's 
There's, there's some churches, if you think about the Catholic church, even some Protestant churches, um, who believe that when Jesus says, this is my body, he means it's literally actually his body, and there's some sort of supernatural thing that happens there. I, I don't read it that way. To me, it's painfully obvious this is a metaphor. In the same way that when we say that we are the body of Christ, we know that we're not literally his fingers and hands and toes. But I think historically there's been a, a strong push of, of Christians to distance themselves from that idea. And so we always gravitate toward the reading that says, do this in remembrance of me. Because I think we want to make it crystal clear to everybody that we're not a part of that group. We almost dwell on it too much, in my opinion. I don't think it's a conscious thing we do. I just think that it's something that we want to distance ourselves from that idea. And look, I, the Catholics and the Protestants broke up like 500 years ago, and I think we can move past that. Because I think we all understand it's a metaphor. We all get it. We're all adults here. We all know how to read a metaphor. And that's important because when Jesus just flat out says, this is my body, and then snaps the bread in half, it gives us a very powerful view of his suffering. It hits a little bit harder. If Je Think about it. If, if the passage would have said, take and eat, this is a metaphorical representation of my body. Please don't take it literally. I want you to only think about the remembrance part. It kind of takes the impact out of the words, doesn't it? Everybody at the table knew what Jesus was talking about. Everybody at the table knew that was a violent suffering, that brokenness, and that this is my body moment. And the beautiful thing about the Lord's Supper is when we take the bread, we have this physical, tangible thing that helps to connect us with Christ's suffering. We need that. We need that thing to hold in our hand to make it feel a little bit more real for us than just words on a page. And so we're, we're not only remembering Christ's suffering, but in a way we're also participating with him in his Pasco, in his suffering, his broken body. In chapter 27, verse 27, it says, the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence. Lost my spot. And they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe around him. And after braiding a crown of thorns, they put a staff in his right hand. And kneeling down before him, they mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him repeatedly on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe and put his own clothes back on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Remember how the book of Matthew started? Go all the way back. This is the genealogy. This is the genesis of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. This is the king. The book of Matthew started out with high hopes of King Jesus, and then we get here, and it's almost a mockery of what a king looks like. It gets you connected with that moment. Jesus was the rightful heir to the kingship of Israel, full of glory on earth and wealth and riches and all of that. By bloodline, he had that right. And instead, he chose Pasco. He chose suffering and ridicule and mocking. 
He's the suffering king that we need. And what's beautiful about that word, pasco, it means suffering, but there's a really powerful play on words there because the word pasco means suffering. The, we, the word Passover, which is the meal they were commemorating, in Greek is pascha. And so in Luke, in the Luke version where Jesus says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover before I suffer, what he's saying is, I've earnestly desired to take the Pascha before I Pascha. And so Jesus is intimately linking these two ideas of his suffering and our deliverance. Just like the Israelites were enslaved to Pharaoh, we were enslaved to our sins, and it's through his suffering, through his Pascha, that we are delivered. This is his body. This is his suffering, and we are all participating with him in that. One of the things I like to do when I take the bread, and this is just something that I do that helps me to connect better, is I will take that piece of bread in my hands, and right before I eat it, I will snap it. I'll break it in half just to really connect and remember that suffering that he went through. I do that for two reasons. One, to connect and to remember that this is representing his body that was broken. And two, it's to remind myself that my sins put him up there. I was the one that broke his body. I might not have been Judas. I might not have been the Roman soldier with the nail, but that doesn't matter. My sins are the reason he needed to suffer. I broke his body. We all did. We are all participating in that. Which takes me to our next, our next word I want you to learn. First was Eucharisto, next one was Pasco. Our next word I want you to learn is koinonia. This means fellowship, it means communion. It comes from the verse, he says, he, he gave it to his disciples and take, eat, this is my body. And after taking the cup and giving thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. He didn't have to add the words all of you in there. It's kind of redundant. When you hand somebody something and say drink from it and you're in a group, all of you is kind of implied, but he wanted to make sure he said drink from it, all of you. It's this recognition that all of the disciples and all of Christ's followers are intimately linked with one another as we take this meal. Good and bad, we are all part of the koinonia, of the fellowship, of the communion. That word, koinonia, in some Bibles they translate it as fellowship. Some Bibles it's sharing or participation, communion. It gives this idea where we are all one. One of the most startling ways I think it's translated comes out of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read that for you. 1 Corinthians 10. It's verse 16. He's talking to the church in Corinth, and he says, Is not the cup of blessing that we blessed a koinonia in the blood of Christ, a sharing in the blood of Christ, a communion, a fellowship in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a koinonia in the body of Christ? We 
are in fellowship with each other and we are in fellowship with God and sharing with him in his suffering. And the tragedy of the book of Matthew is that after Jesus pronounced this koinonia, this communion with his disciples, you know what they did? They all deserted him. Every single one of them. He gets arrested. The disciples realize they're not going to be able to fight their way out of it and they abandon him in the time when he needed that koinonia, that communion the most. They left him. Peter follows Jesus along in the distance, but the rest of them are nowhere to be found. And Peter won't even associate himself with Jesus. They're like, hey, I know you. You sound, your accent sounds like one of those Galilean guys. You're one of Jesus' followers. I, I don't even know the guy. The only thing they were, to, they were united on at that moment was the fact that they all deserted Christ together. And this, this koinonia thing, this fellowship this, with unity here, it includes both our vertical communion with God and our horizontal communion with one another. Those relationships. We as a church, we do stuff together. And, and I feel very strongly about those two aspects of the communion, of the fellowship we take. Um, this, is a, this is a personal conviction of mine. There's not really super strong biblical evidence for it, but this is a personal conviction that I have. I don't take the Lord's Supper by myself. Because I feel like even the word communion, I want to be with other Christians. Now, you're not beholden to my personal convictions. You can absolutely take the Lord's Supper at home by yourself if you want to, but the way I see it, that word communion, I, I want to be in fellowship with the church when I do it. And obviously, in the age of internet and live streams, and there, it gets tricky, right? Because there's this idea like, are we really together when we're not together? I don't know. I don't know how that looks in the modern age. But nevertheless, the Bible and the Lord's Supper and the communion and the fellowship all seem to always go hand in hand with the, the followers of Jesus meeting together. And in fact, in, in that very next passage that I read from in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all share of the one bread. This idea that we are all sharing in Christ's body. In, in, in 1 John, 1 John talks about this a little bit. He says, What we have seen and heard we announce to you, so that you may have koinonia with us, and indeed our koinonia is with the Father. He says, Thus we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now this is the gospel message we've heard from him and announced to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness of all, at all. He says, If we say we have koinonia with him, and yet keep on walking in the darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have koinonia with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So John almost blurs the lines between our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. It makes it really hard to see where one relationship stops and where the next. Let's learn our next word. Our next word I want to teach you today, Jesus says, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, 
that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This word's diatheke. It means covenant. This is a, this is a very strong word. It, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are participating in a covenant with God. I've, I've talked about the idea of a covenant before and, and how it's almost like a rental contract where you're signing your lease. And I think that's an okay to way to think about it, but I think there's so much more to it than that. Because when we're in a diatheke, when a covenant with the almighty everlasting creator of the universe, that's a little bit more important than just signing your lease agreement, isn't it? The ideas are the same, but the intensity of the word is not even comparable. See, the people of Israel in the Old Covenant were defined by their covenant with God. If there was no covenant, if there was no deal with God, there would be no Israel. God makes all sorts of covenants with the nation of Israel. In Exodus, he says, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God initiates his covenant with Israel by the shedding of the blood of the lamb at the Passover, and he ratifies the covenant by giving them the law. But it didn't work because the Israelites didn't keep their end of the deal. They didn't keep up their end of the diatheke. So in Jeremiah, God promises there's going to be a new covenant, an eternal covenant. He says, indeed, a time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant. Sorry, guys. It will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I delivered them from Egypt. For they violated the covenant, even though I was like a faithful husband to them, says the Lord. But I will make a new covenant with the whole nation of Israel, and I will plant them back in the land. He says, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds. I will be their God, and they will be my people. People will no longer need to teach their neighbors and relatives to know me. For all of them, from the least important to the most important, will know me, says the Lord. For I will forgive their sins and will no longer call to mind the wrong they have done. So just like the old covenant, our new covenant with Christ is initiated by the blood of the Lamb. And it's ratified by God giving us the law, by God placing the law in our hearts. And so a lot of times when I approach the Lord's Supper, I will do it from the standpoint of covenant renewal. And I will declare my willingness to remain in his diatheke, in his covenant. And here, here's the beautiful thing. The entire covenant is initiated, ratified, and maintained by God. We don't have to do anything besides agree to be in it. We don't start the covenant. We don't set the terms. We don't have to pray a certain prayer. We don't have to repent of a certain action or make up for anything. We're in the covenant. God says, would you like to be a part of my kingdom? And we say, yes, sir, I would. Thank you. Even our, even our baptism, think about this. Our baptism is the way the Bible describes that we enter into that covenant. It's the way we enter into that relationship with God. But even baptism is a passive action. You don't baptize yourself. You allow yourself to be baptized. 
Nothing we do maintains our covenant relationship with God. Everything is done for us. So when we renew our covenant, when we maintain in our covenant, we just say yes. God says, I'm going to send my son. He's going to be obedient. He's going to die. He's going to suffer. He's going to pay the price of your sins. He's going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's going to place the law in your hearts. He's going to give you a church, a koinonia of like-minded people. He's going to transform you into the likeness of your son. He's going to give you eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. That's God's covenant. And God says, you want to do that? You like that deal? Are you in or are you out? That's his kingdom. God does all of it, and we just say yes. Which is our last, which leads me to our last word. Jesus gives them the bread, he gives them the cup, and he says, I tell you from now on, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The word is basileia. It means kingdom. The series is called Kingdom. We had to end with kingdom, right? We started off this series by talking about the fact that Matthew, in the book of Matthew, talks about the kingdom more than any other book of the Bible, more than all of Paul's letters combined. And here in 29, this is the very last use of the word kingdom in all of Matthew. He says, I will not drink of it until I drink it new, in my Father's kingdom. He's pointing forward to eternity. As citizens of the kingdom, we have a hope that we hold on to, a promise that one day we will have the privilege of joining him at his table with the angels surrounding him saying, holy, 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 worthy is the lamb who was slain. Isn't that going to be great to be able to sit at that table with the king? Heck, I would, I would be willing to sit down on the floor and just eat the scraps, just to sit at his feet. That's how much I want to be in the presence of the king. But you know the beautiful part about it? The beautiful part about God's kingdom is it's already here. We're already in it. There's a fullness of the kingdom that we're awaiting, but right now we still get the privilege and the honor of being in the presence of, king, of the king every time we meet. As a side note, would somebody please go ahead and get uh, Ron and the kids from downstairs or send them a text? See, Jesus is fully aware of what he's doing here. He's in full submission to the Father. He's allowing himself to be arrested. And as he gave up his last breath, the curtain of the temple tore from top to bottom, separating God's kingdom from us. And like Ron read this morning, the women went to go see him, but he was already alive. He was risen. Our king has already won. So now that all that's left for us to do is to serve in his kingdom. We'll take a look at the very last page of the book of Matthew. Verse 16 says, The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain Jesus has designated. 
When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came up to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the king. He says, Therefore, in light of the fact that I am the king, he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember... I am with you always to the end of the age. See, I think when, when Jesus says in the Lord's Supper, I'm not going to take this cup until I drink it new with you in the kingdom of heaven, we get a little bit of a both and. It's the future kingdom, the fullness of God's kingdom. But I think he's also pointing back to the fact that he's with us right here, right now, this Sunday. He's pointing to this moment right now. And last Sunday, and next Sunday, and every time we gather to eat at his table, we declare our gratitude, our Eucharistos. We proclaim the Pascha, the suffering that he went through to institute his kingdom. The koinonia, the fellowship, the communion we have with God and with each other. We maintain our diatheke, our covenant with God that he has so graciously given to us. And we participate as citizens of his kingdom. The almighty king gave himself up, served us, he put himself last. And he's seated on his throne right now on the right hand of the father. That's what we do when we take this not just a cracker. It's not just juice. It's not just a thing we do because we're a church and that's what churches do. This bread and this cup, this is everything. If it's not for that, we don't have a church. Will you pray with me? Father God, we praise you. We, we thank you so much for giving us your son, for instituting your kingdom. We thank you. We just are so grateful for everything you do for us, Lord. We, we praise you for your son's suffering. We praise you for the fellowship that you give us together. We praise you for the covenant that you maintain for us. We praise you for the kingdom that we get to be a part of. And we ask that you would help us to walk with you in that kingdom, knowing that you do it all, God. You do every bit of it. And we just say yes. We pray all of these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus. And the church said, amen. What I want to do right now, yeah, but I haven't done prayers and praises just yet, okay? What I want to do right now um, is I want us to take the, take the Lord's Supper together. And as soon as our shepherd, Ron, gets here, I'm going to ask him to help me. And we're going to actually pass out trays because we want to serve you. Um, and I ask that you, you would take the bread, take the cup, and just wait for a second till everyone's had a chance to get their bread and their cup. And then we'll all take it together. We'll all take it together in fellowship with one another. 
Um, Ron, I was just telling them, we're going to go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and pass these out, and we're going to all take it all at the same time. Would you be willing to help me? 